The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us once again, and wonderful to welcome my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a great discussion ahead, so let's jump right in. Elliot, over to you. Great. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. So, you know, we're just finishing earnings season right now. I guess the last companies have reported over the last couple of days. And one of the things I've been musing about with some friends is how when COVID started, I think it was a Gavin Baker blog post about this first order thinking in markets, how like during extreme events, first order thinking tends to prevail. And then after a little bit, you get to second order thinking. But what I've been musing about with some friends is that it seems like we've been now in three years of first order thinking as the kind of operating environment where there is so much um, dynamism to the environment. So many things are moving so fast and there's a lot that's unprecedented. So even if you were one inclined to say like historically when we were faced with this set of scenarios, what tends to happen coming out of it? And I mean that both on a micro and macro level, you know, you try to like reason by analogy what the future might look like or what certain possibilities uh, may be from here, what paths you might be uh, facing. And yeah, because it's so dynamic and because things are changing so fast, we went from COVID lockdowns to reopening to vaccine to um, kind of this uh, second wave of reopening. And will we have an Omicron wave or not? Will there be uh, like global supply chain problems? And yes, there were, but they were kind of lagged from when we'd expected them. Different countries had different cadences to getting things back together. There's been always this like second uh, derivative effect where where the change in the rate of change um, has been way more volatile than it's been in the past. And I think it's led to this environment where short-termism has just prevailed for far too long and it continues to prevail today. Um, and I think there are a lot of challenges parsing through like, you know, something like inflation where inflation rises the forces are absolutely multifaceted. If you were to blame it on any one thing, I think that would be largely a mistake. There are so many different pieces that came into place to make inflation do what it had done, both on the way up and the way down. And so it's really hard to you know, anchor in on when any one force. Um, but there are certain ways you could demonstrate that short-termism absolutely is a little more in vogue than it had been in, in the past. And I think one of the ones that you'd look for is monthly turnover 
of equities. And that's actually doubled since 2018. So the S&P, it's not quite doubled, but the Russell is totally flat in that time. The average stock is up way less. Uh, so market capitalizations haven't really soared all that much, and yet turnovers doubled. Uh, I don't know what aggregate market cap has done. It would, would have been, probably would have been helpful, but it's definitely it definitely has not doubled while turnover has. Um, so I was thinking, you know, in like poker, where you dynamically reassess your hand after the flop, then again on the turn, and again on the river. Uh, it feels like the market's been doing that, where like every new piece of big information has been something to dynamically reassess everything. Um, and I, I don't mean this for myself. I just mean this for the market um, where, you know, one day, uh, you, just a month apart on the Fed, you go to t- implying tightening forever after to, you know, just a couple weeks later. Oh, the Fed, you know, this is the last uh, raise. It's kind of wild how quickly these things are happening. Um, and, you know, I think there is increasing evidence. Uh, there was a good paper called Are U.S. Firms Becoming More Short-Term Oriented? Evidence of Shifting Firm Time Horizons from Implied Discount Rates that looked at 1980 to 2013. And so not only has like the short-termism of investors been a factor, but their short-termism uh, consequences in what the average investor expects a company to do and how they operate. So you'd see it manifest in declining R&D investments, declining CapEx investments, um, very high turnover amongst large owners, pay packages that are geared toward the wrong incentives, um, activists who buy and then leave before you'd actually see the fruits of their activism. I was thinking of an interesting example. Disney reported earnings about a week and a half ago. You know, just like two years ago at this time, Dan Loeb took an activist stake and was like, you need to invest more in content and broaden the depths of your content. And within two years, you have another activist saying, you need to cut back your investment in content and you need to start making more money instead of investing all that money. It's like, how are we in the same world where this could actually happen? And I think part of it has to do with the fact that over the last few years, in aggregate, hedge funds have not raised money, but pods like the Millenniums and Citadels of the world have raised a lot of money. And there's way more money pooling into these market-neutral strategies that have very high gross but very low nets. Uh, They're short-term oriented strategies with very high turnover. I feel like on group calls with companies, there are way more questions than in years past that are geared toward figuring out exactly whether estimates are too high or too low. I feel like a lot more peers are caught up in this game of are estimates in the right place? I really like this company. I want to buy it, but I think estimates are a little too high, so I'll wait for the reset. And to be clear, that absolutely has worked. Like in every case where I'm like, oh, this thing's priced you know, too cheap for the long term. I don't care about short-term estimates. When the estimates get axed, uh, the stock follows uh, in a bad way. Um, so there's just a lot less time spent thinking and looking uh, two to three years out. And I do think part of this is the environment. I went back and looked at the companies who'd had investor days in the first quarter of 2021. So this is like coming, you know, where we're about two months past vaccine. And if you looked on average, those companies were down over 50%. Um, and it's kind of wild. Uh, there are way too many companies in that basket of companies who'd put out long-term targets, or sorry, mid-term targets, like three to five year out expectations. 
And within a year, they had to pull those targets. So like, it was an environment where anyone who'd wanted to extrapolate any data point was uh, dealt a very tough blow shortly thereafter. Um, so if you made decisions as an operator in this environment based on what you thought were trends that would persist and they rapidly change, you had to similarly dynamically reassess exactly what you're going to do as an operator. And then alongside that, you know, even if you knew what certain of these companies were going to do results-wise, uh, again, bringing it back to coming out of earnings season, there were some cases where you know, you see great earnings and it's like the stock's way down and you can't really explain it. And the explanation you'd get from like um, groups of people, trade desk, et cetera, was like positioning. People were were positioned too long this or too short it and had to unwind that position. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what you guys think. Do you feel there's more short-termism in the market than ever um, if so, how much of it do you think is the uniqueness of the last three years? And I'm curious, you know, is this something that might be a more permanent state or do we get out of this? And if so, how? Yeah, there's a lot there. I would say my short answer is that there's definitely been more first order slash short termism in, in a lot of people's thinking since COVID hit, I think that's partly a natural response to any sort of calamity. I think the things that have happened, including COVID, but all the, it's been a crazy time from, you know, a variety of perspectives over the past several years, you know, two major armed military conflicts going on right now, lots of social unrest, political dysfunction and uncertainty, economic uncertainty, inflation, getting whipsawed all around in the in the financial markets, a spasm of unconstrained speculation and nonsense. It's just been weird. It's been a really weird time. So I think it's pretty normal for people to feel unsettled and unsettled and to know that they don't know what's going on, whether they want to admit that or not. I think deep down they would feel unsettled and and feel adrift and not really know what's happening. Um I've certainly felt that way and been at a loss to explain a lot of the things that I've observed. So when you feel that way, I think going to a primitive kind of mindset, a you know, more of a reactionary mindset, a, a short-term focus rather than a long-term focus, right? I mean, when survival's a doubt, planning for the long haul is a luxury. It just doesn't matter as much. So I think it makes sense. And and you know, it does just seem like things didn't happen at the speed that they are happening now. Again, that is a little bit of a bias, I think, a recency bias kind of thing, because, you know, I was I was talking to somebody the other day um, and he made the comment, and this person was 75, call it, and he said, you know, the, the world has never been more uncertain. And, and he was referring to, you know, the war in Ukraine and Israel, Hamas. And I said, the world has never been more uncertain than it is right now. And I said, well, I wasn't alive, but you were alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wasn't that more uncertain? And he stopped. He goes, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess you're right. That was really scary and a lot more uncertain than this. So, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective in some regard. But, I, you know, I'm not denying that this is a weird, unsettled, uncertain time. But, um, yeah, look, I do think that in, in a more narrow sense, Elliot, to what you asked about in, in the financial markets, I do think there's... A, a significant uptick in, in short-termism for the reasons I mentioned, which is that people are unsettled there too. They don't know what to make of it. What's real, what's not real. Everything from meme stocks to 
interest rates are, you know, it's been unprecedented in a lot of people's lifetimes, what's been happening. And I do think a third thing that's really important that's that's absolutely got a cause and effect relationship here is the casinofication of our financial markets, because it's never been easier to just gamble and do really stupid things, both in the sense that it encourages short-term behavior and encourages short holding periods and trading activity, everything from you know, what could ostensibly be a very good thing, the elimination of commissions at the retail level, for example, that certainly doesn't come without trade-offs, but, you know, really insidious things like Robinhood and the behaviors that they encourage that I think are almost universally negative and bad for their customers, bad for the financial markets, bad for the economy and things like, you know, zero data expiry options, which have no purpose whatsoever other than to just enable gambling. And it is weird to me, right, that as as sports gambling has become legalized in places where it previously wasn't, you know, mostly the US now, um, that it's that it's also coincided with this explosion in gambling in the financial markets. You'd think you'd try to get your fix in one place and not the other, but maybe they bleed into each other and people are just gambling all the time. I don't know. But those are those are my quick thoughts on on the broader spectrum. Yeah, that's a great point generally on feeling unsettled uh, about the environment. And I love your little anecdote about the 75-year-old who said things are more uncertain today and stopping him dead in his tracks, because that's a conversation I'd had with a bunch of people. And I feel like there's this degree to which, um, you know, I think it ties into a lot of that generation lamenting how the world's changed for the worse since they were kids. And yet, you know, there are many tangible signs that point to the world being a much better place today. Though I think there's this natural tendency that as you get older, uh, you know, the world looks, the world is uh, less innocent to you. So you feel it's more uncertain, something I've been grappling with a lot uh, in the last couple of years. And, you know, I think, I think that's tough. I've had that very same conversation and, and and it is eye opening when you actually point to tangible pieces like the Cuban Missile Crisis that, you know, that sort of uncertainty, we didn't, we haven't exactly stared at the world ending in that way. Um, Though the other wrinkle to that is everything seems more liberal, seems more likely to become viral today. So like very small things could ripple in very big ways. And I ask myself, you know, is the world today just that much faster moving and therefore inherently more short-term oriented because of the proliferation of social media, which started before COVID, but I think really accelerated during that time. And so I'd wonder to myself if there's a degree to which this is a more permanent state um, and more part of the nature of, of where the world's going. Though I feel that that is a very like even those thoughts are temporary within my mind that that can't last that there absolutely has to be a time in which um time frames lengthen again and people start thinking and being able to plan longer i go back to those companies who'd put out targets um you know in 2021 that are totally ripped up and i think about a space like life sciences where historically it had been a very steady simple predictable kind of, you know, very little variance business experiencing a really dramatic cycle right now. And, you know, I spoke to someone who who 
does uh, procurement at a CDMO. And they're like, they didn't even have a system to track inventories because inventories of consumables because they'd never had to. And then suddenly you have a massive inventory crisis. Go figure. But like uh, that kind of environment like won't happen again in the exact same way. I, I won't say it won't ever happen again, but like, you know, maybe once we get past these, when you think about an earthquake, you have the aftershocks afterwards. And I think we're still dealing with them, but the farther you get away from the earthquake, the smaller and smaller the aftershocks get until they're, they're gone. I don't. I don't know. Kind of just music, yeah, think, but no. I think that's true. But the the after effects are permanent, right? If the earthquake destroyed a building, it's either going to be forever gone or it's going to be rebuilt somewhat differently. And I think that analogy holds up pretty well for COVID, right? I mean, you look at just the major cataclysms that have affected, you know, just my narrow perspective or world as an American, because there's certainly been much bigger events depending on on where exactly you live or what you experience day to day. But, you know, starting with 9-11 into the financial crisis and then into COVID, I mean, those are three things that, you know, were obviously somewhat uh, unprecedented. They were unique from the perspective of people didn't experience them previously in their lifetime. And they all left lasting consequences. They all left scars, but they also gave birth to new things and new phenomenon that came in their wake. And I think that will be true of COVID. I, I would certainly put COVID up there in terms of just the, the scope of its change and the magnitude of its, of its impact. It, gosh, I mean, you'd, you'd probably have to put it up there with a world war almost, right? Because it was truly global. It was you know, just a massive impact. I mean, it, it certainly was a bigger worldwide impact than just 9-11. I mean, you could argue that 9-11 impacted pretty much everybody, regardless of what country they were living in. But I think COVID had a much bigger and, and broader and deeper reach than just that. So I think it's natural that you're going to continue to see impacts from this. And so even though the pandemic's over and, you know, the COVID virus itself obviously continues on, but you're going to continue to feel the effects of what happened in 2020 and the ensuing couple of years for for a long, long time. As to your prior comment about social media, this was actually something I was just talking about with someone today at lunch about the impact of social media and the the negativity that seems to pervade all forms of social media, regardless of the platform. And I think it just hits on a basic fundamental of of human nature, unfortunately, which is that bad news and rumors spread more quickly than good news and progress. And that's just always been true. Right. It was true before the printing press, and it's certainly true now. And so it's one of the great problems and dangers that we have. I mean, it's great to have access to information. It's great for people to be able to communicate freely. It's not so great when any idiot can start spouting an opinion that influences other people. It's not great when any bad actor has a megaphone to spread disinformation or hate or propaganda. And uh, I, I just don't think there's any avoiding it, unfortunately. And in the financial markets, I'm frankly stunned that we haven't seen more. I don't know if you guys saw this, but when, when WeWork filed um, bankruptcy the other day, uh, some idiot who had registered a corporate entity in Arizona uh, put out a press release, actually paid the fee, put it on Business Wire, and said that he was making an, a, an unsolicited offer of like, I forget what it was, $6 a share or $10 a share or something for the, for the company. I did see that. that. And he said that he consulted legal counsel as advisors and God, it was just 
very strange and but it got picked up right i mean it got actually you know picked up because you put it out on business wire was that and, comedy you know, or was that like no no i don't think so do you think he bought actually, shares and he was trying to flip them into that press release i mean that's the obvious implication but i think he was uh, i did look it up as I, it was written about and as usual matt levine picked it up in his brilliant column at bloomberg and the guy's like a a quack real estate developer who had all sorts of other problems already under underway other problems that he was already facing so i don't know if this was a harebrained scheme or who knows but anyway i mean it just it didn't make a huge impact but it did briefly spike the price right and i'm so, i'm shocked we don't see more stuff like that we obviously see tons of financial crimes and promotions and frauds and all sorts of nonsense but it's just so easy to do that kind of stuff i guess it's pretty easy to get caught too but um surprised there's not more of it yeah i think i mean part of it i i would agree that there is at least a lot of short-termism is it the most ever who knows i would say there's a good chance that it is i think part of it is also just that it feels like we're at or near a, a zenith of sort of um you know asset management and money management as a niche profession or as a you know you 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 have all of it you have the huge uh, the black rocks the fidelities uh you know the trillion dollar plus money managers but then you also have just you know your single sh- person shops um where you know, maybe they um, have enough money to sort of get by and you just hang out the shingle and say, um, I also manage money for third parties, not just for myself. Uh, the point being is I think there's just so much competition in the money management business that even the professionals have gotten very um, short-term oriented uh, because you know, the pressure to compete right now is just so huge that uh, I think, you know, that that principal agent problem is uh, is a real one. And um, even money managers who maybe would manage their own money with a longer term view feel like for clients, they have to perform right now just because it's so easy to take their money elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, those earnings that I talked about where people are like, oh, the positioning and the expectations, the estimates are too high. I don't want to buy it. It's like, if you were not thinking about the market over, you know, the next two weeks um, and you like the price, it shouldn't matter at all. Like that shouldn't factor into the equation. I think optics matter a lot, though. And so people are like, you know, I'd rather be late on the other side of it. Uh, then show my clients some pain along the way. And I do think that's a great point on the principal agent problem. I, I think everyone wants to idealize this uh, world in which people invest and you know pretend we're all private equity analysts and buying companies, uh, not, not stocks, right? We're buying pieces of companies. Um, but there is a degree to which, and to be quite frank, that should be an advantage to people who can you know, look past that and and think and act much more long-term. Um, though I think we've talked about this on past podcasts too. There's, there, there is a big gap between thinking and acting long-term as well. Um, yeah, I was going to say something along those lines, Elliot, in response to your comment, John, because this to me 
explains, you know, a, a huge chunk of the story here that is, is, which is just the incentives. And, and it, it goes back to, you know, it's a tired cliche at this point, but show me the incentives and I'll show you the behavior. And I think the incentives are such in financial markets, but also in, in lots of other things, right? I was having a debate, debate the other day about sports teams. And uh, my contention was that the the distribution of coaching talent generally follows a bell curve and that you if you have a truly great coach you know someone in the top you know two standard deviations so to speak somebody in the top three four five percent that you should just kind of hold on to that coach for as long as that coach cares to continue in the job and i don't care if you have a bad season or two or three or four bad seasons in a row uh, but you have to be very careful about evaluating what that talent level really looks like and conversely if you made a rare mistake you know and you have a you know, a bad one in 20, one in 30 kind of result and outcome, you should hire, you should fire that coach as quickly as he was, he or she was, was hired and just move on as quickly as possible. But for everybody in the, in between, you have this massive amount of turnover, right? Coaches getting paid $75 million by a public university to get bought out to not coach, which is just nuts because you're just going to turn around and replace somebody who's in the exact same set of circumstances, somewhere in the middle of that bell curve. And it makes absolutely no sense. But what are the incentives? The incentives are to please the boosters and the administration and the fans and everybody else who wants to win right now. They don't care about last season. They don't care about next season. They want to win right now. They don't have the patience to build things up over a period of time. And I feel the same way about investment managers and fund performance because look, the simple truth is the most patient people on earth should be the retail investors who are investing for their own account, their own money, for their own retirement, for their own children or grandchildren's college educations, years hence, whatever the case may be. And in many cases, they are the most patient, but they can also get suckered in by the casinofication and the gambling instinct and all this other stuff that goes on. And the other crowd that should be really patient, which falls directly into the principal agent problem, are the big capital allocators who are at the university endowments and to a lesser extent, sometimes the pensions, but they're, they've just been totally captured by the principal agent problem. And I used to get kind of annoyed and worked up about it until I just realized it's human nature. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, but what they care about most is themselves and, and their own career status, their own job title, their own salary and income. And so whether they would care to admit it or not, they're encouraging most of the short-termist behaviors. And in, in a lot of cases, most of the worst behaviors while you know, ostensibly investing and, and or espousing the guidelines of, oh, we invest forever. We have a permanent time horizon. We have you know, infinitely long-lived capital, and it's just not how they behave, right? And I don't see a way around it. I think it's just kind of the world we live in. We're kind of stuck with it. Well, I was about to say, I can't believe you have friends who think uh, Bill Belichick could be fired, and then you went to the college route. So I was happy to hear that. And uh, Well, it was funny. I mean, look, I think there's some Patriots fans that would like to see Bill Belichick fired, not just the talk radio show, like, you know, blowhards ranting and, and raving. And, and look, I think he's probably a good example, though, because everybody should also be evaluated in the context of what they've done. And if a good manager is managing a great business, he's going to look like a superstar coach, a superstar manager, a superstar executive. And when you, when you're coaching a hall of famer, you know, arguably the greatest quarterback ever at the most important position in the sport, that's going to make you look even better than you are. Not to say that he's good or bad. It's just, it's without doubt that when you have that level of talent around you, you're going to look awesome. Whereas if you're coaching the worst team with no talent, doesn't matter how good you are, you're going to struggle. 
right? It's just that's yeah. I can go on a long tangent concept. on how I think he helped create Brady into who he was, right? But sure. um, I think you know, I think I'd heard this phrase first in sports, well before markets. But it's a very much a "What have you done for me lately?" kind of oh, world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and the half life of success, I think, has gotten even shorter because you'd absolutely think someone like Belichick has more than uh, you know a couple years post uh, quarterback turnover to figure it out. And kind of like you said, you'd been debating this with football. Like I think it's kind of related uh, on the soccer sidelines for my girls games, the dads, we talk a lot about football teams and, you know, there's this big debate um, in giants, jets and Pats territory. So we get all three on the TV, but one of the big debates is like where the giants like that's stupid for signing Daniel Jones to a long-term extension. And I think there's this argument to be made. Uh, I wasn't the one making it. I'd heard it and I'm kind of sympathetic to it, um, that it was the right thing to do, though it hasn't worked out well because there are only, you know, eight viable NFL quarterbacks. And if you don't have one of the eight viable quarterbacks, your team has no hope anyway. So if you have someone who you think is potentially like league average or better and could do so for, you know, a long period of time, it's a good long-term risk to try to lock them down and make sure you have them. And then, Hey, you know, after two years, you could cut them with very minimal consequence. So you could have the both long-term locked in success and get out of the pain in the, in the near term. So long as you could financially afford it. Yeah, those are it. I mean, I think that's right, but you know, there you're looking at a scarce good and and a wasting asset to use very nerdy economic terms. But I, I would refer to it more like to, the examples like the English Premier League, right? It's the most competitive domestic league in the world and the world's most popular game. And they turn over managers like crazy. I mean, they fire, you know, ostensibly good coaches who've been successful at other clubs and they fire them all the time, very frequently. Like, it's hard to imagine an Alex Ferguson getting another, you know, multi-decade run in this environment because it just seems like it's, yeah, that that is an example where the pressure to just perform right now, you, you don't tolerate a bad season or two bad seasons in a row. It just doesn't happen anymore. And yeah, I mean, to your point, Bill Belichick was fired before, right? He was fired by Cleveland all those years ago. Um, yeah, I'm sure you could argue that he wasn't as good a coach back then. He didn't have as much experience, whatever. But yeah, he also, and that's probably all true, but he also didn't have a good team around him, so... And he was supposed to be my Jets coach before he kind of cheated oh, his way right. into the before past. He, before he bailed on that. Yeah, that's right. It's a good point on Premier League. Like, I think it's, I, I don't know if it's exactly the same. I kind of get the sense in in soccer it is though also. But like the more you turn over, the more problems you have because, um, and I think it applies to markets in, in an indirect way. But like each coach that comes in has a different system and you're, going to face different challenges because your personnel and everything else is not necessarily aligned to where you're going. It's more consistent with where you've been. And so then whoever's coming in has a couple years of friction in the first place. And then you have to get through that. And I feel like that's happened with a lot of portfolios in the last few years where it's like, oh, you know, I need a position for the digital economy because we're going to have COVID forever. And then it's like, oh, I need a position for reopening because my God, people are going to like get back into the world and it's going to happen fast to... Like, oh, I don't know where to be. Like, we have inflation now. It's really hard to be in the physical world. And it's just these pendulums keep swinging back and forth and you're chasing your tail instead of, uh, you know, building a bridge going forward. I think that's right. I mean, no matter whether you're hiring and turning over frequently at the lowest level 
which is painful and expensive, or in the very top job, which is both painful and expensive and also disruptive. Because like you said, it comes with a learning period. It comes with lots of adjustments and kind of wasted energy and time as people get to know each other. So it's it's very difficult in that regard. And yeah, I mean, look, it, it's certainly a red flag for me when you see a company that turns over a lot of CEOs and, you know, it's partly correlation, but it is partly causation. I mean, it, it's not a good sign. And, um, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see because so many of the most powerful companies right now, particularly, uh, I don't know if I'd call them the younger generation, but let's call them mostly tech-focused, tech-enabled companies that have been around for like 10 or 20 years. The Vogue, when they went public, if they did, was mostly to keep perpetual founder control. So it allows the existing management team to survive. And I think that was largely done out of self-interest because they didn't want to get fired, but they also did it under the guise of it's good for the company to preserve that continuity. And I would mostly agree. I mean, there has to be some trade-off between accountability and short-termism. And uh, that's a difficult thing to get right. But, you know, again, if I were the, you know, benevolent dictator of one of these companies or the world, I would err more toward on the side of of less turnover, less is more. I think we've probably gone a little bit overboard in terms of hiring and firing senior managers, turning over the equity and debt portfolios of our, you know, own portfolios of our institutions, hiring and firing sports coaches, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it just, it's a lot of wasted energy. It's a lot of running on a treadmill. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think uh, some of these companies, if you go back like a year or two ago, they would have said their biggest bottleneck is hiring people. And now some of them will admit they have too much bloat, (laughs) which is like, to be fair to them, like some of it is that they'd had a lot of employee churn and that churn suddenly stopped. So you still have a pipeline of people coming in. And so you net hire a lot more people than you'd originally intended to. Oops. Uh, Make up for that mistake. Right. Um, But then... You know, this idea that um, what, what you're talking about with with uh, owner control, I think part of that is like you go back to the uh, wake of the dot-com bust. And I think, you know, you're, you're a function of the environment you come out of. And a lot of these founders who had made moves to maintain control had seen what happened to others before them that was not very kind. And that was kind of damaging to their own lives and their companies. And they're like, well, you know, one of the lessons out of dot-com was, you know, if you're a founder and you want to see this through, you maintain control and you don't uh, deal with the same problems that some of these other founders had dealt with. Um, and and I do think a lot of this environment, I, I think there are some bigger changes afoot despite this dynamism and short-termism that I've been talking about. I had a really interesting conversation with a company just yesterday. Um, they'd been like, if you go back over their history over like 30 years, they'd been amazing at repurchasing shares at awesome times. Like it had always been uh, when the stock was low and the fundamentals were going to inflect. They're like a growth cyclical. And then they did their peak repurchase in Q4 of 21 and Q1 of 22. And you know, I'd finally gotten the chance to like really talk to them. And and they only gave me 30 minutes, which was shorter than I'd hoped for. And with like 10 minutes left, I was like, could I just tell you, like you recently said something about how you might start uh, repurchasing to offset dilution. And I was like, please don't do that. That's a terrible idea. Um, and I went on a rant about how that's just bad in principle. And they're like, can we 
do you have extra time? Can we talk about this a little more? They said that the sell side coverage had been telling them to do this. They'd heard it from a board member and some consultants. And it's like, my God, you know, why is why is this happening? They're like, no one has said that to us. No one has told us not to not to be thinking this way. And I was hmm. like, well, you know, that was the zeitgeist of what worked from call it like really, I think it was like 2017 through 2020. And the zeitgeist is is going to be different. Like that is the way of the past. And who's ever telling you this hasn't let go of, of the recent past. But I think that's very similar to like the founder's control. And I think these pendulums kind of go back and forth, back and forth. And it's like whatever environment you come out of will be what dictates where where you go with that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, it's funny that they never felt like someone told them that before. And it drives me a little nuts because I do think that's the role that a long-term institutional shareholder or, or I guess a big individual can can play. And it's something that companies need to hear. And I had a really interesting call yesterday with a company. It was about a $2 billion market cap publicly traded company here in the U.S. And it's one of the most thoughtful management teams I've ever interacted with, despite the fact that there is nothing about this company that would scream sophisticated, thoughtful, interesting, anything. It's a very old, uh, I hate to say it, just boring company. They have brands, consumer brands, but it's basically a commoditized product. The industry structure is actually quite good, but the elephant in the room is that the the market is mature or declining. Uh, so they should do okay because it's consolidated and they can, they're a low cost producer and they can flex, you know, volumes up and down and, and match price to kind of tread water. But really the only thing that matters is, you know, what does the, the demand look like over three, five and 10 years? Because if it's flat or just down very gently, this company will do really well. If it falls off a cliff and it really gets ugly, then they're going to have a problem. And yet, what do they get questions about and what do they focus on this quarter, next quarter, you know, tax rate, you know, help me guide my model to X, Y, Z, all the usual crap, right? So they were asking me, what would I do differently? What would I think about this? What would I think about that? And the things we talked about were, you know, why are you guys issuing guidance? And well, they were issuing guidance because they spun out of a bigger company and the old parent issued guidance every quarter and their advisors said, you guys have to issue guidance too. So they said, okay, even though they didn't want to do it and now they hate doing it because they put out annual guidance at the beginning of the year this year, which was really just their, they had just completed their first year as an independent public company and they put out guidance of X and within you know, 180 days, the combination of just normal course demand fluctuations, uh, cross-border currency fluctuations, interest rates, uh, their their forecast just wasn't very good. And instead of hitting X, it was like 70 cents of X and they look like idiots and the stock went down. And it's like, well, yeah, but like that was all like not really stuff you screwed up. You just made a bad forecast. And if you had asked me to forecast all those things, I would have gotten a lot of them wrong too. And that's why I don't do it. So why are you guys trying to do it? And it's really stupid. Like the, the worst case scenario is like, okay, the stock went down. And if the stock went down too much, these guys are extremely rational about saying, we're going to calculate a range of intrinsic value for the company. And if we can buy it below the low end of that range and get at least a 20% return on the dollars we spend to repurchase our own stock, we're going to do it. And if it's less than 20%, we're not going to do it. And I was like, that is music to my ears. That's exactly what you should be doing. So why are you screwing around with all this stupid guidance? Why don't you instead just put out multi-year 
kind of targets. And that's what they had sort of been kicking around internally is like, well, yeah, what do you think about like using a midpoint of a range for a multi-year target? And I said, yes, exactly. That's, that's exactly what you should be doing. Get people focusing on and caring about what this business can do through the cycle over a three to five year period and let all the other noise just fade into the background because who cares? It's just short term stuff that's not going to impact anything over the long haul anyway. That's exactly right. But I feel like a lot of companies are scared to do that right now because of how hard it was to do during COVID. Like anyone who'd put out yeah. midterm guidance or a midterm outlook over the course of 2019 through uh, 2021 literally had no hope. Um, and a lot of them were too scared to say yeah. like, hey, we need to rip up our playbook and focus on like the fact that the world's different. So forget about that guidance because it's you know, effectively a noose around management's neck that they have to try it to is. hit. Right, exactly. So why why tempt yourself, right? Like tie yourself to the mast and resist the siren song of issuing guidance, making, quote, commitments to Wall Street. It's all garbage. Only bad things can come of it. So why do it at all? I mean, again, I think once you train people off of that and just say, we're not going to do the guidance game, we're not going to do the quarterly, get on the call, congratulations for a great quarter, how should I be thinking about X game? Just get over it and move on. And I can point to it's a it's a small universe, but there are some enormously successful companies that haven't done that stuff in years and years or decades or forever, and they've done very well. Google so, doesn't guide. That's one I right. always point to. Like, sure, right. I hate I mean, Apple with their guidance. Where like that's part of the game that I just absolutely can't stand. It's like. They guide and people like care about it, yet their guide is fake. It's it, I, I'd imagine they take whatever their forecast is and haircut it by 20% so that there's no chance, no matter what happens in the environment, that they'd ever miss it. Hmm. So they're like setting up this hurdle that they could just like, you know, step over. Interesting. Well, I'm not an expert on the way Apple does it, but it doesn't seem necessary or productive or helpful. Doing yeah, it but it's way. there. People, I know it gives analysts something to talk about and something to noodle about, and you know, well, I think that's can... just it. Yeah, it's performance art, so they can justify their own existence and they can put out, you know, reports with models and whatever. But again, if you're the company, if you're the CEO, CFO, director of a company is doing that. Like, what what does that do? What what good is that? How does that make the company more valuable, more successful? more robust next year and five years and 10 years from now. It doesn't. It makes you more fragile, if anything. It's the truth. So do you think companies will get back to some more midterm guidance or midterm mm. outlooks as we get to a more stable operating environment? Does such a thing even exist? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know what would... I would hope you'd get to fewer, you know, spasms and... and problems in the world so that you could have that right i mean like the interest rate volatility has been painful and crazy and disruptive supply chains obviously COVID itself the wars um I, I would hope obviously for the obvious reasons we could get away from that in coming years but i don't know if that's really realistic and i don't know what normal really means in that context and so i think the problem is when you start going down this path and issuing guidance and doing all sorts of stuff that's based on short-term pressures you get a inertia kicks in and people just are resistant to change. And then B, like, you know, if you're willing to even entertain the thought of change, it's like scary to take that step off the ledge. I mean, we're, again, that same company that I was just referring to, they said, well, you know, we want to quit issuing guidance, but we just don't really know how and when to do it. And I said, well, I get it. Like, I understand that's a little scary. And like, if you were to do it, 
like, what are, what are you afraid of? Like, what's the worst case scenario? And I said, is it that you don't want to look foolish because you say, okay, we're no longer going to issue guidance. And instead it gets picked up on Bloomberg as company XYZ suspends guidance and the stock goes down 10 or 20% in a day. Cause I said, Hey, if that happens and you know that it's completely irrational because it has nothing to do with the value of the business and you're a smart repurchaser of your own stock, that's not a bad thing. That's a, you know, kind of a, a blessing in disguise at worst. So who cares? And B, if you're like worried that you look stupid in front of your directors, like, you know, or your constituents or whomever, just explain to them in advance what you're doing and why and say, we're willing to take this risk of looking foolish in the short term because this is in the best long-term interest of the company. That is literally your fiduciary duty, right? If you're sitting here telling me that issuing guidance is not good for the company, if anything, it's neutral to negative for the company, you have an outright duty to stop doing it. It's like, yeah, boy, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. And it's like, well, so a, a way to kind of split the middle, which is to get, which is to do the right thing, but kind of be a, a chicken about it is to wait until you're in a position of strength. So the next time you're going to have a good quarter, a good year, and you're going to hit all the numbers you've pre-announced, but it's time to announce some new numbers, say, look, you know, everything's going great. You know, we just hit all our numbers. Everything's fine. The house is not burning but we've decided it's no longer in the best interest of the company to issue short-term financial guidance. So here's what we're doing instead and why. You can be damn sure investors will immediately conclude the house is imminently going to burn. (laughs) But again, if they do, so what, right? I mean, if if you know the house isn't burning and it's being given away in a fire sale, okay, I'll go out and buy some stock, right? I'll buy See, I'd say now is the time to go do it of all times where you could effectively say, hey, we've been issuing guidance for a long time. We just went through an extremely dynamic operating environment. It continues to be so. And we don't think having had guidance out there helped us at any point along the way. Yeah, right. I would have thought COVID itself, like in 2020, how the hell can you give guidance in 2020? Nobody knows up from down, right? It was all a complete guess. No one had any clue. And I get it. You don't want to create, you know, uh, a vacuum. You don't want to have people lose confidence, uh, particularly depending on the type of bank you're in. But if your enterprise, if your business itself is not fragile and, and you weren't able to issue guidance in 2020, because again, how the hell could you give much guidance in, in 2020? That would have been the time to just go cold turkey. Well, say, so that's interesting well, because I think that's part of why we'd ended up with such short-termism because yeah. the, the SEC effectively said to companies, you could talk more frequently about your operating performance. And you won't face any consequences. During so companies have gotten out did? there. Or you just mean in general over the light, like with the Jobs Act? and No, in 2020, I forgot exactly how they formalized it, but companies were given a, an encouragement and a pass to go speak uh, more frequently about like actual numbers. Um, well, I, even, I don't know about that, but even behaviorally, you know, there was this need to say, all right, we're facing this crazy uncertainty let me keep supplying you with information. Little data points, little tidbits, it may not have mattered at all. It may have been a contraindicator in some regards, but let's just keep pumping information out. And again, that becomes a hard habit to wean yourself off of if you're doing that. Even if there were good intentions behind that, I think it was counterproductive. So it's not great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're always a function of your environment. And and I do think these things like overstay their welcome (laughs) once they start. Yeah, and I so I look to answer the the question you posed a second ago. I I would not expect any companies to. I would not expect there to be some great, you know, push towards 
you know, we're going to manage for the longer term and not give quarterly or annual financial guidance. Like, I think that's unrealistic to expect that anytime soon for any reason. It just doesn't, I don't think that's the way the world's going to work, unfortunately, even though it makes sense. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, I'd love to see it. I tend to flock to companies that that don't give guidance. Um, but it does seem like too much of the investor community expects it too. So um, companies think that it's expected and fear what would happen if they didn't do it. Yeah, so but, but again, it. but even even for a company without a, a self, you know, correcting mechanism like a like a share repurchase program. What you're basically saying is like, okay, if you're a company who's following this line of thought, I think that the financial markets, the community of investors out there expects us to guide them as to what our results are going to be over the next quarter or the next year or whatever. And if we don't do that, then what? The worst thing they could come up with is the stock will be inefficiently priced too low. And it's like, well, you are assuming a level of market inefficiency that just doesn't exist. (laughs) I'm here to tell you that if you keep filing your financial information on time as legally required, that is all the information the financial markets need to digest how things are going to go. And if anything, it should dampen volatility. And if you think it's going to pull prices out of line with fundamentals and you think it's going to permanently stay out of line, uh, that to me is just crazy. And, and totally ridiculous. There's uh, infinite information out there. There's real-time information out there. And you making an often subjected, subjective or misguided forecast of what you think your own business is going to do is just not relevant to what, you know, if, if you think prices track fundamentals over the long haul, which I certainly do, and, I, you know, there's plenty of empirical evidence to support that bold claim, there's no way you could say that Re- removing a co- a very error prone biased forecast from the information subset that's feeding those price data is going to make it totally out of whack. It's just nonsense. And it doesn't mean you can't speak contextually and give pretty sure. good color about like right keep keep parts of your business about KPIs right. that people should follow. And right. um, absolutely, I'm with you there, man. And, and and as a as a counterbalance to short termism, I mean, again, some of the most successful companies that have been built in the last five, ten, twenty years that have survived plenty of uncertain environments uh, have have figured out that if you construct your company around a culture of long termism, and you just say, okay, you know, we're not going to play the game of you know beat and raise guidance or you know issuing guidance at all or lots of sell side conferences and meetings with investors that you can just forge your own path and it works. If your business is successful, that's all that matters. Look at Amazon, look at Netflix. They do a great job at that kind of stuff. And they certainly haven't been disproportionately punished. It's not like the stock fell totally out of line with funding. They both do guide though. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, but again, they did it their way. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think it, I don't think it became the tail wagging the dog, right? Agreed. And again, I would argue that if they never issued a single bit of guidance in their life, it would have ever mattered. Berkshire Hathaway's never issued a single bit of guidance in its life. NVR hasn't had a conference call in 20 years, as far as I know. It's a bloody home builder, right? They put out <laughs> a like like a two paragraph press release and file the queue and tell everybody to piss off. Like it's and it's worked just fine to say the least, right? It's outperformed everything that you could ever imagine. And it's uh, so 
again, if you're arguing something that can't be proven and I've got a counterfactual that proves that it's false, like I win. That's just how it goes, <laughs> right? This is true. These are facts. Yeah. It is interesting. It's 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 like hard to identify the companies, but it's almost easy. It's the ones that you like if you look for what companies are off the radar and have been around a long time. Yeah. It tends to be yeah. something there. Yeah, for sure. Because they're trying to plan ahead for like what's going to keep us alive five and ten years from now if X or Y or Z happens, all these bad things come along. And it has nothing to do with hitting estimates. Right. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but like the king of this and how you sow your own demise is is GE. Right. That was the yep. most insidious game of all time. Like, not only are we gonna beat estimates and we're gonna do it down to a penny where a penny per share is like a rounding error that goes into the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars grabbed across all of these disparate business lines where at the end of every quarter you're just racing around playing accounting games to beat guidance. It's insanity. That's a good point. Like the very fact of guidance increases the potential yeah. and the incentive to do something. It encourages it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to fight against it, if anything. Right? You're, you're saying like, okay, this incentive is now very real. I have to fight against doing that bad thing. It's crazy. Absolutely nuts. Even something like channel stuffing or, you know. Yep, for sure. Not exactly illegal, but something that people could uh, do to try to play the game and make sure they're winning the wrong game. Yeah, exactly. Because none of that stuff, you'd go to your board and say, this is good for the long-term health of the business, right? And as a director, you have a fiduciary duty to the stakeholders of that organization. And to me, you're just totally failing your job if you're saying, oh, you know, let's let's issue quarterly guidance. And if it comes with a little channel stuffing, a little, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, we'll take some revenue out of next quarter and pull it forward, whatever, you're just totally failing to do your job. But there's no real personal ramifications, no smoking gun, no enforcement of any kind, and it's everybody else is doing it, so on it goes, right? Yeah, but that's a way that like investor short-termism plays out in like operating short-termism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They reinforce each other. That's the problem, unfortunately. Well, great discussion, guys. Uh, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think you said it all. Um, I hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed it as well. We do need less uh, short-termism in the world. Um, not sure that's going to happen, though, anytime <laughs> soon. Yeah, I agree, unfortunately. Well, thank you all for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.